Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. On today's episode of the Need to Know podcast, we are bringing you a version of a briefing that we did with two of our experts on disinformation surrounding the coronavirus in Eastern Europe and in China. To discuss, we have two guests that should be familiar to our listeners. Nina Jankowitz, who is the disinformation scholar from our Science and Technology Innovation Program, and Ray Zong, who is the program associate for our Kissinger Institute, covering what's going on in China, and we've had her on the program before as well. So Nina, why don't we start with you? We've seen that this COVID-19 situation is not just taking its toll on the U.S. and China, but we're also seeing it hit in Eastern Europe and in Russia. And like everywhere else, there's a lot of disinformation out there. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about uh, the disinformation trends. Um, in terms of the health things, I can give you a broader picture, but but definitely not a health expert, and I'm not going to uh, spread any disinformation about that. Um, so thanks for having me. Hope everyone is staying safe and healthy. Um, I hope uh, what I'm about to say is still interesting to you, but for me, there's nothing really surprising about how uh, Russian disinformers, Chinese disinformers, or anybody in the United States, domestic purveyors of disinformation are using this crisis as an opportunity to push whatever narratives they are looking to push, or in some cases to make a profit. We're seeing a lot of hucksters and uh, snake oil salesmen on the internet trying to peddle masks and hand sanitizer and uh, cures for the coronavirus that don't exist. Um, and I don't think any of that is, is any different coming from Russia. The first um, indication that we had that Russia was using the coronavirus as an opportunity uh, to spread malign narratives was in Ukraine back in February when evacuees from Wuhan were uh, flown to Ukraine and sent to a sanatorium to recover. And there was a fake email uh, that is believed to have Russian provenance that uh, said it was from the Ukrainian Ministry of Health about how no precautions were going to be taken uh, from for to isolate these these folks from the rest of uh, the, the people in the village that they were going to be housed. Of course, this was fake, but it created uh, protests there in the village where the sanatorium was uh, that turned violent. Um, and since then, the Ukrainian government has really tried to uh, be a lot more proactive about uh, communicating about the crisis since they know that uh, a lack of transparency and a lack of communication could uh, could actually lead to some dangerous situations in the future. So that was the first indication. But since then, there have been a number of reports that were leaked, including from our own Global Engagement Center at the State Department and the East Stratcom Task Force uh, in the European External Action Service, which monitors disinformation, both of which said that Russia and other purveyors of disinformation, uh, foreign malign actors, were using the crisis in order to spread uh, malign narratives. And of course, again, not surprising, uh, whatever weaknesses we have in our society, Russia is very practiced at identifying those and exploiting those fissures to its own gain. Um, and you can just look at RT and Sputnik and their headlines and see, actually, uh, this is fairly obvious what they're trying to do. Again, undermining Western structures, undermining uh, the U.S. narrative and U.S. capability for um, 
addressing crises like this. Now, what's interesting about this, however, isn't that uh, Russia is necessarily trying to drive us further apart, although I think that is always one of its foreign policy and certainly one of its um, disinformation goals. I think actually the primary audience for Russian disinformation in this instance is Russians themselves. Uh, Russia is doing a fairly good job at uh, pretending that it doesn't have a crisis going on. Putin waited until the last minute to uh, institute a lockdown in the countries. He's in, in the country. He's devolved a lot of responsibility to governors rather than taking on the crisis as the president of Russia himself. Um, and we're hearing reports from Russian doctors and nurses that Russia is suffering from many of the same shortages of personal protective equipment uh, and ventilators and things like this. Um, that the United States and other Western nations are suffering from, and probably I would wager that they're actually more pronounced in Russia because the Russian healthcare system is uh, quite corrupt and, and in many cases does not meet the needs of the citizens. And so, of course, uh, Russian media aren't reporting on this and you won't hear about it. But when the president of Russia is able to point to the United States and say, uh, they're not doing a very good job handling this crisis, look at all the lapses here, we're going to send them some aid, which I'm sure you all read about, uh, which happened last week, uh, Russian government sent us aid, uh, which I would say is 100% a PR coup for the Russian Federation. It's not meant to, you know, join our common humanity. It's, it's absolutely something that's just going to play on Russia's Channel One, and in fact it did, and you can, you can see this reflected again in Sputnik and RT headlines, um, that, you know, once a great uh, distributor of aid the United States is now accepting aid from the Russian Federation. And I'm, of course, I'm sure you all understand the irony there. After having uh, asked USAID to leave Russia in 2012, now Russia is sending us aid in a health crisis. It's, I think, one of the most successful trolling operations that the Russian Federation has ever put over on us. So that's kind of how I see... Um, the Russian playbook evolving right now. Um, and again, I, I don't think that the, this is a unique crisis uh, in, in terms of disinformation. I think what makes it unique is that right now everyone around the world is united in their fear uh, for their own health, for their loved one's health, and they're united in their lack of information. Everyone wants to know more about how they can protect themselves, when we're going to get out of quarantine, all of these things. And as a result, that's driving a lot of the uh, the disinformation online. There's just so much of an opportunity. And for any purveyor of disinformation, it would be um, a real loss not to capitalize on that because the return on investment is going to be very high. Um, and for that reason, in the work that I've been doing, which if you're familiar with my work, very, very much follows along with kind of the citizens-based responses to disinformation that I advocate for, um, I have been advocating for informational distancing in addition to social distancing. So if we see something that is playing on our emotions, as most disinformation does, if we feel ourselves getting extremely angry or worried, or if, if anyone is able to feel joy anymore, <laughs> if you're feeling some joy, <laughs> Um, there, that's a good indication that you're being emotionally manipulated and that you should just close your device and walk away. Um, and so that's something that I'm trying to, to get more and more people to do. We don't need to continue to doom scroll for hours and hours on end. We should be vetting our information and getting it from experts and doctors, uh, not pundits and politicians in this era. And when our politicians are communicating, they should be doing so transparently uh, and, and uh you know, cogently in a way that is reflecting the best uh, advice from experts of the day. And I think with that, I will leave it there. 
Thanks, Nina. I love the term doom scroll. I'm going to have to work that into the title somehow, where you just keep falling further and further down that rabbit hole. Uh, I do want to insert a question here that we got from a congressional staffer that I think is appropriate to talk about here. What is the difference between propaganda and disinformation? That's a great question. And uh, actually, I think I can illustrate it using that same Russian example of aid. Um, so uh, propaganda, in, in my definition, although some other people will, will define it differently, is um, informational campaign that is used to support either a point of view, a worldview, or in this case, a government, right? So uh, that plane going to the United States uh, is, is propaganda for the Russian government. Disinformation is incorrect or false or misleading information that is distributed with malign intent, uh, not to be confused with misinformation, which is false or misleading information that is not distributed with that malign intent. So it's the difference of, um, you know, a, a Russian troll factory worker who is distributing that stuff inauthentically through a fake account on Facebook or um, your crazy Aunt Susie or Uncle Joe who is distributing uh, misinformation because they believe in some sort of uh, conspiracy theory that COVID is caused by 5G, something like that. They're not doing it with malign intent to mislead millions of people. They're actually buying into it. Turning to the Kissinger Institute's Ray Zong. Welcome back, Ray. You have covered the situation in Wuhan for us on the podcast before, and it's such an interesting turn of events. We went from having a trade war to tariffs to talking about phase one and two of an epic trade deal with China. Uh, and then, and, and that was just a couple months ago, right? And then now we have this COVID-19 situation. Give us a take on this situation and also the revisionism that we're seeing in China regarding the virus. Sure, Aaron. So uh, Nina made a really interesting point in her remarks earlier in that, you know, COVID-19 has really united people in fear. And I think in China, the perception of the coronavirus as a threat, even with the disinformation problems and the, um, you know, active propaganda campaigns within China, the threat perception of this virus within China both by the government and by uh, non-governmental institutions, people and communities, it's really, really different from a lot of the other security issues that we've seen China run into. So um, I just wanna start off my remarks um, by uh, going to the question that is circulating in a lot of US policy communities. How much of COVID-19 can we attribute to China specifically? So this has been a um, debate that has taken up a lot of spaces in broadcast and print media and in analyst circles. Um, for me and for a lot of other China analysts, China itself was hit hardest by the mismanagement of COVID-19. When doctors within Wuhan were struggling to handle with and circulate information, even internally about COVID-19, uh, the suppression of information really uh, blindsided the hospitals and eventually the local government there first. So when I say that China is both a uh, producer of disinformation, which is essentially what is more active at this point in time, but also a target of disinformation. This is, this is what I mean. Um, 
when the virus initially hit, um, they had underestimated the extent that it was going to be a security problem. And even now, when Wuhan is just coming out of the total absolute lockdown, um, they're not really sure when things are going to head back to normal. The city and the broader province is still littered with checkpoints. And we're starting to see reports that business shutdowns are sweeping China after this mismanagement and disinformation by the government. When I say disinformation, what I mean is that um, a couple of really fatal mistakes were made in December and January, including the information that was spread by Wuhan and Hubei's health commissions that there was no human-to-human -human transmission of the virus. So this information essentially allowed the city to sort of function um, with business as usual. Um, you had, you know, governmental congregations for uh, Chinese New Year. You had communities preparing to travel domestically and overseas for the holiday. And ultimately, this contributed to some of the domestic and the international spread of the disease. But what it has cost China is the um, definitely, you know, some international reputational damage because of this information, but also economic damage. China has come out of this with many businesses shutting down, many business operations slowing down. So in terms of tar China as a target for misinformation, it has borne some of the costs. In terms of how much we can attribute to uh, China's disinformation um, in absorbing, you know, the international um, ramifications of COVID-19. I think this is something that remains up in the air at the moment. Um, you know, because China is now sort of looking towards the other side of managing uh, its own domestic COVID-19 situation, the uh, attempts to massage its image internationally through propaganda, through PR, through mask diplomacy, albeit I, I would imagine at a larger scale um, than Russia because of um, its ability to um, deploy state-owned enterprise and Chinese cor corporate muscle in this. Um, so right now the official sort of chi Chinese government narrative of COVID-19 is something that they are prioritizing and pushing out uh, through domestic and international communications ch channels. So this is something that, you know, China is obviously prioritizing at the moment to try to bolster its international image. At the same time, domestic responses in other countries, including preparations of hospitals, public health systems, um, you know, economic damage control, Ultimately, that's not necessarily something that can be pinned on China because China cannot actually secretly coordinate economic and um, emergency policy relief for other countries, particularly after, you know, cases peaked and plateaued in China. And this was observed by governments in um, other places. And so I think ultimately, like, in terms of 
what China itself is putting out, you can definitely um, discuss the consequences of bad information, especially early on. But at this point, because of the scale of COVID-19 and because of the information that is openly available at the time, there are limits to what policy faults can be attributed to the Chinese government at this point in time. I'm wondering, Ray, is China worried about what comes next economically with the trade situation with the United States? They seem to be out in front on the messaging on coronavirus. But what are you seeing as far as the economic front there? So a part of the economic toll that COVID-19 has taken is due to the fact that uh, China and the United States are both key players in the global supply chain and in the global trade of goods and services and financial flows. So as the United States is being hit extremely hard in terms of productivity and employment as a consequence of COVID-19, this definitely has a chance of being treated as a security concern by the United States. And we are expected to see more aggressive policy towards China, um, specifically looking at the White House. I'm sure our attendees will have a much better idea of what's currently going on within Congress in terms of proposed legislation or resolutions. Um, But in terms of production, there were a lot of manufacturing facilities within China, including in uh, Zhejiang province, which makes a lot of um, makes a lot of electronics and consumer goods that were slowed down by a pretty significant amount. Um, some of the slowdowns can be offset by the fact that China's COVID-19 crisis coincided with a time that factories are closed anyway during New Year's. But the slowdowns in Hubei province and Zhejiang province uh, and the very, very slow speed that they're being ramped up is definitely something that's going to take a hit. In terms of phase two, I have no idea when a phase two is going to happen because at this point, diplomatic relations between China and the United States are are fairly tense. We've seen um, the expulsion of journalists from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, Washington Post, and Time Magazine. Um, You have Chinese foreign ministry spokespeople going on Twitter and trying to spar with the White House and the State Department. And right now, I'm not, I'm also not sure, more importantly, what condition the underlying back channels that have gotten technical issues resolved between China and the United States. I'm not 100% sure what state that those communication channels are in. Because sometimes, you know, publicly, China and the United States can sort of squabble, but then some of these underlying communications channels have been maintained. Not sure what state those are in right now. Ray, we've heard a lot about conspiracy theories on our side, but I've also heard that there are conspiracy theories that are in China that the United States is the one who started and spread the virus. 
Uh, this a lot of this really centers around a foreign ministry spokesman named Zhao Li Jian. He is formerly a posted in Pakistan for the foreign ministry, got promoted recently, and he has been circulating a conspiracy theory that American military personnel were the originators of COVID-19 through military exercises conducted in China in November. This has not been substantiated by any credible sources, but it's been picking up steam in certain circles in China. As of late, I think China's foreign ministry realized they had sort of entered a very high-risk, low-reward scenario with Zhao continuing to circulate these comments. And so you've had um, foreign ministry personnel and some ambassadors take a step back from such statements, but this being China's foreign ministry, there's no chance, uh, there's, there's no or very low chance that, you know, these very assertive, aggressive remarks don't resurface at some point in the future, given what we know about the very confrontational nature of U.S.-China relations um, for the foreseeable future. Turning to some questions we received from congressional staffers, one of them, how can Congress clearly communicate to the public what disinformation is and combat this disinformation when it happens? Um, I can take that to start. So this is something that um, that I think a lot about. And you, uh, you most of you probably were invited, although lots of other things were going on at, uh, in Congress at the time. So no, no hard feelings that you didn't attend. But we had a... Uh, defending or defeating disinformation uh, workshop with a bunch of legislators from all over the world, Mexico, Brazil, Canada, UK, and France. Um, we're hoping to do more of those in the future, so we'll hope, we hope that you'll come. But uh, the, the stuff that we talked about there, and I think the conclusion that we came to, and this is certainly reflected in my own research of countries that have been dealing with this threat a lot longer than we have, is um, one of the most important things is a clear recognition of the threat from uh, all sides, all political spectra, if you will, um, everybody agreeing that it is a threat, uh, and then using those democratic principles that we hold so near and dear to our hearts in communications with constituents. Um, so I'll give an example from Poland, uh, which is one of the cases that I look at in my book and I think has a lot, um, a lot of lessons for us here in the United States at our current juncture. Um, Poland, uh, no love lost with Russia, of course. They, they recognize the threat of Russian disinformation. But one of the things that undermines their work against Russian disinformation is the fact that a lot of politicians themselves engage in disinformation, including the ruling party, who in a number of studies has been proven to uh, control a host of bots and trolls that they push out into the online ecosystem to affect the discourse. Um, and as a result, that kind of undermines the message that, uh, hey, we have this threat, Russia is using disinformation to affect us, but we're also doing it and that's okay, right? Our standards need to apply democratically across the board to everyone. And we need to be able to communicate the fact that domestic disinformation, which does exist as we're seeing proliferate uh, all over the place right now with, with COVID, um, is just as much of a threat as foreign disinformation. And in fact, is 
uh, bolstered by our social media platforms and the information ecosystem right now. Um, so I think, you know, we just have to go back to those American values of, uh, of, of truth, of democratic discourse, and um, we need to lead by example. And that needs to come from our, our elected officials in, in Congress, and it needs to come from political appointees across government. And anybody who has any sort of megaphone right now, um, there's a lot of extra onus on them to, uh, to keep those democratic ideals close to heart um, as we make our way through this murky uh, information ecosystem. Okay, um, so to add to Nina's very good points, I think that, um, c that one takeaway from China that I think might be important to Congress is that right now we're seeing a lot of scrutiny that zeroes in on China's response to COVID-19 as a whole. Um, and I think that it's important to separate some of its quarantine and health policy strategy from its information and reporting crackdowns, its censorship and other forms of surveillance. Because this is a crisis that has brought about a very large package of policies by the Chinese governments. They've, you know, constructed temporary hospitals. They've also silenced doctors that are considered whistleblowers. It's not uh, a sort of black and white scenario where all the policies are good or all the policies are bad. So figuring out that the technical skills that China used to counter COVID-19, I think is really, really critical. And depoliticizing the technical lessons out of China can really, really help out hospitals, state and local governments. We're seeing doctors from China interact with their counterparts in the United States to share tips and strategies. This is ultimately a good exchange. Generally speaking, they're not, they don't have enough time to debate US-China tensions um, when they're in these exchanges. Alibaba, um, which through its foundation has sent a free PDF of hospital and health facility management strategies as a free PDF, you know, out for any um, hospital to use if they choose. And so these types of communications exchanges can actually be quite helpful. Um, on a far less positive and sunny note, there have also been um, all these um, debates happening in multilateral spaces with regards to the WHO. I know Taiwan and cross-strait relations is something that a lot of legislators focused on Asia issues have been looking at. I think in this case, it is also important to separate the technical information that the WHO is putting out from some of the political uh, issues, specifically with regards to, I think, one of their deputy directors hung up on a Hong Kong reporter asking about Taiwan and the WHO and um, the, the question of China's influence on the WHO and UN information. Those are all very, very valid foreign policy questions for the United States to consider. However, it shouldn't prevent 
policy strategies from looking at the very, very critical technical issues of resolving COVID-19 spread within the United States at this time. Another question from a congressional staffer. How can you compare Russia's current disinformation efforts regarding COVID-19 to the efforts of the USSR in the 1980s that AIDS was spread by the United States and particularly the CIA? Sure. So I think the main difference is the means of, of distribution, of course. Um, the the conspiracy theory that AIDS was created and deployed by the United States uh, was only able to get seated in a couple of fringy uh, paper, you know, old school publications, right? And now we have the, uh, the tools of, of social media, which allow disinformers of all stripes to target their messages at a very, very minute level to the people who are most likely to engage with them. Um, and that's why we're seeing a lot of these conspiracy theories from things about MH17 to the conspiracy theories related to uh, COVID-19 proliferating in this day and age. So the tools are, are extremely powerful. And I think, again, it's important to underline that it's not just Russia that's exploiting them. There are plenty of people uh, around the world, domestically and otherwise, who are using them as well. Um, the second thing that I think is different uh, is, is that Russia is not just pushing one theory or one piece of disinformation about COVID-19. Um, and in general, I think this would characterize Russia's information warfare strategy um, in the modern digital age. Rather than just uh, trying to undermine through one theory, it's a lot cheaper and a lot easier to just put a lot of junk out there. And I like to describe this as spaghetti at the wall. Um, they have the, the resources, both human and monetary, to really play around. And social media companies allow them to see what is sticky. So they can put out 10 different ads or 10 different posts across their different groups of uh, fringes all over the internet and, and see what's going to, to get the most traction and then continue directing their resources um, that way. And we saw them use that strategy in the lead up to and after the 2016 election. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that, not only with relation to coronavirus, but as we head toward November in our 2020 elections. And one thing that I'll say um, that's extremely concerning to me as a researcher, and I, I do a little bit less of the digital forensic type stuff that some disinformation researchers, researchers do. I'm more of a, a qualitative interview type person. But when I'm looking for campaigns online, it's gotten much more difficult for me as a researcher to track them because uh, Russia and other disinformers have moved underground. The social media companies finally have started to respond and make it more difficult for purveyors of disinformation to just you know, buy an ad in rubles, as the famous example goes. Now they're moving to things like groups. Um, and Politico EU just did an investigation that came out last week, if I'm not mistaken, about coronavirus disinformation spreading in groups. Um, and these are secret or closed groups. So we're not, you know, the, the folks on Facebook's back end, in addition to researchers like me, it's a lot harder to find that stuff. You have to actually kind of break Facebook's terms of service to get <laughs> into those groups, either creating a fake account or lying about who you are, which again is against those terms of service, um, and then track that information. Um, so that's, that's concerning to me, and I think that's another means uh, because you build up community through these groups because you, you view these folks as your friends, right? You don't know who's lurking there from a Russian troll factory. That's how information is spreading in a very different um, and more grassroots means than during the 1980s with the AIDS conspiracy theories out of the Soviet Union. That's fascinating. And of course, it's like water, right? Whenever you close off one avenue, it's going to find some other way to flow. 
And is this just something within human nature, within our psychology? That there are so many examples of this and how it's basically unstoppable by any government or social media company or anything like that. It's just going to happen. So for Chinese rumors and conspiracy theories, I think part of this can be attributed to the fact that there's not an open media or social media environment. Mm. And so uh, the nature of rumor mills within WeChat, Weibo, that really, really exacerbated the harms of COVID-19 in China were that, you know, there, there were rumors that there was a new SARS-like disease spreading within some of uh, Wuhan's hospitals, but without confirmation with, by government officials or by people with a larger platform, this was not going to spur the types of shutdowns, quarantining, and other large-scale policy responses that were ultimately needed to address COVID-19. And so the rumor habits of Chinese internet users, part of it can be chalked up to you know, people's curiosity of, well, there obviously has to be an explanation for this. I think this is what happened post, post, post. Um, but China's, the way that Chinese information platforms shook out in this instance is that by the time Wuhan was preparing to go on lockdown, it took somebody that, ha it took Dr. Zhong Nanshan, who is well known for, countering epidemics who had the clout to not get fired or disciplined um, in response for going public with the information that it could be transmitted from human to human for provincial governments and for the general public to really, really start taking COVID-19 seriously. Nina, what do you think on the psychology question? Yeah, I, I think it's part of the reason that disinformation is so appealing to many people, right? And we often um, will categorize certain groups as being more susceptible to disinformation, whether it's older internet users or sometimes, uh, sometimes older folks will point to young people and say that they believe anything they'll read on the internet, right? But in reality, especially in the time of a pandemic like this, um, there's just so much emotion, as I mentioned before, coursing through events and, and fear um, that I think everybody is searching for something, whether it's a miracle cure or, or you know, toilet paper. Um, and, uh, and we're all looking for something and that makes us kind of grasp at, at threads and why we really need more friction in the information environment, whether that is the social media company is imposing that on us or some sort of self-imposed friction where you're literally, again, distancing yourself from your device um, because right now in our brains um, what the information that appeals to us is not necessarily the information that's going to be uh, most helpful or healthy. And another question from a congressional staffer, is disinformation a political hot topic or is it a bipartisan problem? It is absolutely a bipartisan problem. Uh, disinformation, I would, in fact, using, putting aside partisanship at all, it's a democratic small d problem. Uh, we, it is absolutely 100% directly related to the health of our democracy. Uh, we need uh, good information to make good choices at the ballot box, regardless of partisanship. We need our citizens to be informed. We need them to feel like they have a voice. And one of the 
most important or I think highest goals of, of disinformers is to get people to stop feeling like their voice matters and to stop participating. And democracy doesn't work without participation. So it is not only a bipartisan problem, it is a democratic small d problem. What do you guys see out on the horizon and what do we need to be watching for? Sure. So I think uh, on the horizon, in terms of um, domestic policy priorities, as our uh, congressional staffer colleagues are probably worried about, it's it's still going to be um, about uh, domestic coronavirus responses. And I think zeroing in on the technical aspects of preparing hospitals, um, emergency funding, uh, and in the medium to long-term economic and um, other types of emergency recovery is going to be really necessary. And this, I think, is something that, despite the very blustery rhetoric from China, this is definitely something at the top of the uh, Chinese government's agenda right now. Because, um, you know, whatever, um, whatever tensions or um, bad diplomatic relations might be happening at the end of the day, economic productivity is a really, really important uh, sustaining force in Chinese social and political stability. And the same goes for the United States. So I think maintaining that stability in the medium to long term is probably going to be a policy priority. Um, so I'm going to talk about this a little bit from the tech angle. I think um, in the past couple of weeks, we have seen what our social media platforms are capable of doing if they have the political will to do so. And certainly thousands of people dying uh, is a good reason to finally start acting on some of the disinformation that we're seeing. Um, conversely, you know, I, what, the, what the platforms have been doing mostly is mass takedowns, right, about, uh, about coronavirus disinformation fairly indiscriminately. Uh, on the other hand, some advertising is still coming up where it's not supposed to about face masks and hand sanitizer and things like that. Uh, so it's been a spotty response, but they've actually acted in coordination. Um, I'd like to see more of that coordination on the tougher policy issues. And I think we should resist the urge to con just do mass takedowns of content. Um, that's what I call playing whack-a-troll. So uh, we can take down all of these pieces of, of disinformation. We can take down the accounts that, that put them out, but they're just going to continue to proliferate because that's the way that the social media information ecosphere works, right? Um, so I think we have to think a little bit harder when, we're, when we start to think about regulation. I know that seems like a long time away, uh, although, of course, it's always f uh, front of mind for me, but I recognize that not everybody wakes up every morning thinking about how to regulate social media platforms. But when we're through uh, coronavirus response and we start to think about the mundane things again, and I think disinformation should be up there, um, we, we need to think about um, a systematic uh, way to get everybody on the same page in terms of our social media platforms, our telecom platforms that, that power kind of the internet, um, and understanding how we can respond holistically uh, to the problems of disinformation online. And that might be through some sort of agency. We certainly need to create uh, unified definitions of the harms that we are encountering because right now all of the platforms deal with them differently and call them different things. Um, and again, especially when we're talking about foreign disinformation, uh, moving away from the platforms, we need that recognition from our leaders that this is indeed a problem um, and that it has you know, diffuse effects throughout our democracy, including... Uh, you know, the health of our democracy itself. And, and we need to start to address those low-hanging fruit. The fact that we haven't gotten uh, online ad 
restrictions for political campaigns and political donors through Congress yet um, is, is an issue of great uh, embarrassment to me when I go to Europe and have to explain that to people. So I hope that we'll get that through because we need the same restrictions that we have on, on radio, TV, and print uh, as our online ads, and that's the lowest hanging fruit. So that would be my message. Start with the low hanging fruit and then deal with those, those bigger issues, but we shouldn't use an authoritarian cudgel when we do. Uh, we have to think democratically about this and, and the decisions that we make are going to have uh, ripple effects across the rest of the world, which is trying to legislate for social media regulation right now as well. Well, as always, this is a fascinating discussion. Uh, really appreciate Nina Jankowitz, our disinformation fellow from the Science Technology Innovation Program, and Ray Zong, an associate in our Kissinger Institute, for taking the time to come yet again to help us understand disinformation and what's going on in China, what's going on in Russia. We will continue to bring these kinds of episodes to you on the Need to Know podcast. Uh, we are certainly, like everyone else, we're trying to figure out our way uh, through this stay-at-home situation. Fortunately, uh, been able to produce more podcasts for you, maybe even than usual. Uh, but we hope that you're enjoying it. Stay tuned. The Need to Know podcast has more for you. <laughs>